This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumele Lezundi, as we broadcast to you, to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. It's 92625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band, 9625 on the 31 meter band, to Southern Africa, 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet, and channelafrica.co.za. If you want to stream us, I'm with Onel Lentinti, with Sene Matebula, and Musi Budimakura, your top stories. Or eyes were on Zimbabwe's constitutional court as opposition seeks to overturn the July 30 elections outcomes. More than 700 kilograms of pangolin scales and traffic from Bangui intercepted in Cameroon. In economics, Egypt plans to attract 11 billion US dollars in foreign direct investment in the current 2018-2019 fiscal year. And in sports, South African tennis star Kevin Anderson to be seeded fifth for this year's US Open. Onelin Zinzi has your news. Thank you, Spoo. Presidential candidates who are cited in opposition MDC Alliance leader Nelson Chamisa's constitutional court application are not allowed to agree with him that the outcome was flawed. Zimbabwe Chief Justice Luke Malaba says if a candidate agrees with Chamisa's application, this is tantamount to filing their own petition after the stipulated deadline of seven days to contest the results passed on August 10. Malaba is leading nine judges proceeding over the case in Harare, Ntagwaningatani reports. The Zimbabwe Electoral Commission should be elated that the court has agreed with its answering papers. It had submitted that if presidential candidates cited as respondents agree with Chamisa in their submissions to the court, they will be indirectly filing their own petitions after the deadline. Judge Malaba says he is not convinced with arguments put forward by Noah Manyika, Danny Shumba and Elton Mangoma's lawyers and he mocked them saying all other candidates supporting the application are pretending to be Chamisa and they should file their own petitions. Malawi's Public Affairs Committee, a religious group including main opposition Malawi Congress Party, have endorsed anti-government protests organized by human rights defenders set for September 7, 2018. The backing comes a few days after human rights defenders said they would demonstrate across their country. According to human rights activists, issues to be raised in the upcoming demonstrations are government failures to address worsening governance levels as evidenced by increased levels of corruption. The electoral reform is not finished by this year, and then uh, we, have, we, we conduct our elections in 2019 with the, uh, the old system. Again, you, you, you know, Your Excellency, that uh, soon after the, the elections, then uh, rumblings here and there, and uh, it would be prudent for us that uh, uh, when it comes to 2019 at the elections, we have dealt with the issue of uh, electoral reform, so that people go into 2019 uh, with a very clear guidelines as well the elections will be conducted. 
Morocco's King Mohammed VI has pardoned a total of 188 people linked to the Herak protest movement on the occasion of Islam's Eid al-Adha religious feast. The National Council on Human Rights initially reported that royal pardons had been granted to 11 activists serving sentences of two to three years in prison for their part in the popular movement whose protests rocked the Northern Reef region in 2016 and 2017. The legal representative for President Donald Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, says his client has information he is willing to share with the special counsel investigating Russian interference in the 2016 election. In a televised interview, Lonnie Davis says Cohen has acknowledged regarding how much Trump knew about the hacking of Democratic Party computers. He had matters that would be of interest to the special counsel relating to pre-knowledge of computer hacking by Donald Trump, which, if true, would constitute knowledge of a crime committed by a foreign government in hacking our computers, which was part of the indictment of 12 Russians that the special counsel has already published. And lastly, the authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo have approved the use of four further experimental vaccines to tackle the outbreak on the deadly Ebola virus. So far, 32 people are confirmed to have died in the latest outbreak. There are now five uh, experimental treatments for Ebola that have been approved by the Ministry of Health, uh, and uh, we understand that, uh, that two of them have already uh, been used. Uh, so basically, uh, uh, all those necessary measures uh, in any Ebola outbreak are already in place, and we have these two additional tools, vaccine that we have already used uh, in the outbreak in Equatorial Province uh, a few months ago, and that we are using now, and in addition, we have these experimental uh, therapeutics uh, that are being used for the first time in the ongoing Ebola outbreak. Channel African News, I'm Onelensinzi. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective.
Now, all eyes were on Zimbabwe today as the country's constitutional court heard the petition lodged by opposition leader Nelson Chamisa in his bid to overturn President Emerson Mnangagwa's victory in the July 30 elections. There is a tight security in Zimbabwe's capital. Police have barricaded the roads around the court in central Harare as tensions have risen ahead of the crucial court case, which will decide if the election of President Emerson Mnangagwa is valid. The opposition claims the vote had a gross mathematical errors and it seeks a fresh election over or a declaration that its candidate Nelson Chamisa is the winner of the July 30 vote. More from constitutional law experts Brian Takuma Kagoro. I think that um, it is a valid challenge. The election in Zimbabwe did not meet the rigorous standard expected of elections in a democratic society uh, that they be free, fair, credible and transparent on one ground, that the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission now is on record saying that the result that they announced on TV was inaccurate and that the result that they announced on their website was also inaccurate, that the correct result according to them is a result that emerged a few days ago. Now this casts a lot of doubt. Before you even go to the opposition's case, a lot of doubts regarding the verification process of the vote as well as the integrity of the process. Now, Emerson Nangagwa, uh, Brian, and the Electoral Commission are arguing the application should be dismissed um, on a technicality because it was filed too late and that the papers were not properly served um, on the respondents. Will the courts uh, consider that? I think that if it were an ordinary matter, uh, those would be very potent arguments because uh, the courts are not very happy with uh, litigants who file papers uh, contrary to the court rules. But when you, you are dealing with a constitutional matter which has this level of significance for the destiny and stability of the country, it is important to hear the merits of the case. Uh, when there is a failure to comply with the rules of the court, it is within the discretion of the court to condone such failure. However, when there's a failure to comply with the Constitution, the court cannot grant condonation. It cannot excuse non-compliance with the Constitution. So in this matter, it is alleged that Chamisa's lawyers did not comply with court rules in filing their application. And Chamisa's lawyers are alleging that the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission did not comply with the Constitution in conducting the election. It's uh, therefore fair to have both sets of arguments heard and exhausted and the court to determine both on the technical and also on the substantive matters. Now, should the MDC not come out at tops in this appeal, what other options do they have? I think that it is commendable that they have used the judicial route in order to try and exhaust their contest by engaging in a peaceful means of showing their displeasure it seems to me that it's back to the drawing board, ensuring that there are comprehensive state and electoral reforms that will enable all future elections to be conducted in terms of the law. I think, though, for Zimbabwe, the, any court ruling that doesn't deal with the substantive matters is not going to dispel the cloud uh, of uh, illegitimacy that has hovered around the governance in Zimbabwe since uh, the early 2000s. So it is incumbent upon all political actors in Zimbabwe to have comprehensive dialogue about how to ensure that the country is not held hostage uh, by 
this constant electoral mode. Uh, Zimbabwe has been in an electoral campaign mode since uh, 1999, and very little else has actually happened. The politics has undermined the economy and also eroded significantly the um, social uh, and other factors, including livelihoods of people. Now, um, what's the likelihood, uh, Brian, of uh, election results being overturned in your view? I think because uh, the matter is before the court, I do not wish to preempt it. Uh, the argument is still going on. Uh, it would be unwise for me at the moment uh, to prejudge. I think once we've had the argument uh, by uh, counsel for the first respondent, who is Mnangagwa, we'll be able to determine which direction this matter is going. And thus far, the Supreme Court has uh, decided not to hear the arguments raised by the 5th and the 17th respondent saying that uh, if they intended to raise these ar- arguments, they ought to have been applicants um, in the matter. Uh, whatever the merits and demerits of such a ruling, I think it would be improper for me to comment on it at the present since the matter is still being adjudicated. That's constitutional law experts Brian Dakuma Kagoro on the line with as economists or there. Now, for the latest from Zimbabwe, now joined on the line from Harare by our correspondent Simon Muchama. Hello, and thank you very much for joining us, Simon. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, things for the day have ended in court, have they? No, in actual fact, this is uh, something that Zimbabweans need to know. Uh, the court uh, is in difficulty uh, to end the court session today. Uh, prematurely because it is it is running out of time now because constitutionally demanded for them to hear this case ends on Friday. So today, tomorrow, they are still hearing, hearing the submissions from Nelson Chamisa's lawyers, uh, Emerson Nangagwa's lawyers, and Zek and uh, Ch- Ch- Justice Chigumba, the chairperson of Zek. Those are the key elements in the uh, court um, a petition or application that is being heard now. So right now, as I'm speaking to you, uh, they have just started hearing submissions from uh, Justice Chugumba, the chairperson of the, the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission. Uh, he is also the lawyer. Um, he's also representing Zek, and uh, he's also representing another uh, respondent. Uh, we have just heard uh, submissions from uh, Advocate Uriri, uh, who is representing uh, Emerson Mnangagwa. And uh, there's also Advocate Magwaliba, who was also assisting uh, Advocate Uriri. But uh, the matter, as it is uh, coming out now, it is now shaping up. You find that the submissions which were made by the lawyers representing MDC Alliance, President Nelson Chamisa, uh, were actually saying that uh, the uh, primary evidence that is required by the court in such matters is not material at the moment because uh, they are relying on secondary evidence which they managed to uh, acquire because they were saying the primary evidence could only be uh, obtained from Zek, but they can no longer trust Zek at the moment because Zek has since changed figures and percentages of the winning margin for the uh, incumbent uh, Emerson Mnangagwa. So everything that else that, that she might produce at the moment might not be trusted. And that's the reason why they had to find other sources to get evidence, which was not enough anyway. But they were saying they are not basing their argument on the real evidence on the ground, but 
the information which even Zek itself has admitted to making errors and they're saying based on that they wish the court to overturn the results and uh, announce a rerun uh, of these elections. Whereas, if we then go to the uh, submissions by the lawyers representing Emma Tulumunangagwa, they were simply uh, riding on the fact that Sabani um, Mpofu had uh, said that uh, they didn't have the primary evidence and then they were actually praying that uh, the application should be uh, set aside and then uh, Emma Tulumunangagwa declared the winner. But this is in terms of the law and the constitution. It is now then up to the court to then decide on the merits and the submissions made so far uh, who actually is saying something that is tangible and realistic beyond reasonable doubt that indeed there's a case here and uh, if doubts are not credible, then there will be another election. But we cannot tell at the moment, but slowly but sure we are seeing the case now shaping and taking direction. All right. Um, and you're saying that um, they are still in court at the moment. Um, for, uh, for today, for this day, how long are they expected to be in court until? I think they might be in court even up to 1 a.m., 2 a.m., for as long as there are submissions to be made and there are um, cross-examination or re-cross-examinations to be made, then it means that they have got to be in court until they exhaust all the submissions and then maybe tomorrow... It will be a day of maybe finalizing uh, the submissions and arguments. And then I want to believe that according to the law, the, all the lawyers were telling us that uh, they cannot exceed Friday, which is the 24th, for the Constitutional Court to give a ruling. But I think now the merits of the matter has now been um, uh, limited to quite a few things now as compared to the 1,000 pages that we're seeing in terms of arguments. So those few things now are whether uh, Zek complied with the Constitution when they were running the elections or not. It is just simple, just looking at what they did and what the Constitution says. Then on the other hand, ZANU-PF colluded with Zek to um, change the figures and so forth to benefit ZANU-PF. And then if Mnangagwa is the beneficiary, what, what role did he play? in making sure that he benefits from everything that was being done by Zek. Now, this is just the matter that is being argued at the moment. Most of the issues have been thrown away because uh, I think it might take even weeks or even months for the court to give a ruling if they were to follow everything. The issue is now on the credibility of how uh, Zek conducted himself and uh, whether the evidence that had been provided so far in the arguments will prove that... Uh, uh, the constitution was not followed. Um, Simon, there was also an issue with the South African lawyers. Um, there were reports that at some point they were kicked out of court. Uh, in actual fact, uh, the lawyers uh, who were representing Nelson Chamisa initially in the morning, they gave a perception that Dalim uh, Pofu uh, and his partner went into court and they were evicted uh, from the court and then later readmitted, which was not the case. What really happened is that uh, when they got to the court, there was a uh, paperwork which needed to be uh, presented uh, the officers uh, at the court there for someone to access the courtroom because the courtroom was reserved for certain people who needed accreditation for them to get in 
And that's the time when they could not get seen. This is now uh, the explanation we are getting after that news uh, circulated that they had been evicted from the court. Then they are saying that uh, later on, even after their colleagues, they had already gone into the mm. court. They were then admitted to go into court, but they were warned not to address the court because they did not have the certificate for them to practice law mm. in Zimbabwe, even though they were part of the legal team that was representing uh, Nelson Chamisa. But we have seen mm. that uh, throughout uh, the court process, they have been writing notes, uh, giving uh, advice yes. to the team that is uh, operating in, in favor of uh, Nelson Chamisa. So um, basically, they are part uh, passive, uh, there's passive involvement of um, uh, Dalimpov and his partner in the war case. So they are actually uh, monitoring, uh, observing, and then writing notes, giving advice to Tabanimpov. That's how they've been swinging through all the days. All right. Um, and Simon, um, maybe if you can tell us how important is this case for Zimbabwe's uh, uh, democracy? This is very important because as it stands right now, there are three issues here to be looked at. One, democracy, legitimacy, and constitutionalism. So at the end of the day, you find that uh, this is the first of its kind in Zimbabwe. Why? Because we are now following new laws uh, after the uh, Electoral Act was amended. And then secondly, we are also looking at the Constitution itself. This is the first time that we have had such a challenge in court under the new uh, constitution, which was passed in 2018. The judiciary itself seems to be on trial. Everyone is now looking at the judiciary, whether they have not been um, influenced by the executive to make certain decisions on behalf of Emerson Mnangagwa. The military's involvement is also at play here. The, people also want to know whether the military is also involved like they did uh, in the coup in November last year, in coming up with the decision in the judiciary and the election result. Because Zeg is yes. also alleged to have a lot of soldiers there mm-hmm. and they who have influenced the outcome of the election result. So there are a lot of yes. issues yet to look at. So the courts have got to be very, very careful not just to throw away this matter deathlessly because that will actually discredit everything that yes. Nangabwa has done, Zeke has done, what the military has been doing and so forth. Then Zimbabwe is going to be in trouble because of just one mistake. So they have got to be very careful. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. All right. Our correspondent there, Simon Machema, joining me from Harare in Zimbabwe. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. 
All right, thank you very much for staying with us right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumele Lezondi. Tweet us on Channel Africa One or you can email us. It's info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, as part of Women's Month, the brand South Africa and the Tabumbegi Foundation are hosting a national dialogue under the theme African Women as a Vanguard of Continental Integration, making the African Free Trade Agreement a reality. This at the Vets University School of Governance. The discussion will be facilitated by Professor Lula Makubela, who is currently a research associate at the Gordon Institute of Business Sciences, or GIBS, who gives her time in mentoring, coaching, and supervising MBA students, editing research reports, as well as contributing to the business school research outputs. And now joining me on the line is Chief Marketing Officer at Brand South Africa, Linda. Mahapatuna Sangaret. Hello and thank you very much for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, what's this national dialogue all about? So the national dialogue is very important to us at Brand South Africa. We have these national dialogues on several themes. And as you know, we are in Women's Month now. Uh, so the focus is around women. It is around the development of women. It is around ensuring that women are not left out of key areas of development, key topics of discussion that are hot on the African agenda. And that is what this dialogue is about. It is to ensure that in the context of the, the African Union Agenda 2063, which, as you know, is the guiding framework uh, over the next 50 years, we integrate the question of women and full participation of women in the accords being signed, in the, 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 the negotiations happening, and whatever agreement is come to. And in the Africa Free Trade Agreement, you know, we have, we have seen that from previous experience, that when initiatives like this are signed and um, drafted and women don't make an active contribution to it in terms of their needs from the start, it is then very difficult for them to be recognized and for them to actually benefit directly from such uh, initiatives. So that is one of the key reasons uh, that Brand South Africa is um, co-hosting this event with the Foundation. Mm, let's talk about your facilitator now. Um, why did you choose the professor? You know, I think it's really important for us, first of all, to have a woman, uh, but to have a woman who can speak to other people in the area of business, um, who can speak on empowering women, and who has experience in this um, in this area but also who academically has the background um, and is able to provide a view and and a a solid platform for us to base our discussions on. So we are really proud to have Professor Makubela facilitating this for us and being with us at this event. I think that the messages that she is going to come and share with us and the discussion that will come out of that is going to lead us to concrete proposals and actions that can be taken into account and that can mm-hmm. be recognized when implementing the initiative. Mm. Um, you talk about um, the inclusion of women in the accords being signed um, ar- across the African continent, really. Um, do women often get left out of these? Yes. 
Yes, they do. So what happens is women as individuals, perhaps not, and one or two of them might be sitting at negotiating tables, etc. But the issues that women are facing, from that point of view, they get left out. And to what extent will they be accommodated specifically as women and the challenges that they are facing in the context of these accords are things that need to be taken into account from the beginning. That is why this is so so crucial. So it usually becomes um, yeah, like maybe by ma'am, the way. Yeah, maybe if you can give us some of those specifics, what are some of those issues that women are facing that don't come to the table that are never discussed? Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you look, you need to look at things like demographics, uh, things like poverty with women, things like access to loans for women, you know, who, who is the portion of the population uh, that is most undermined in a situation like this and that will not benefit if the issues are not attended to from the beginning. So if we look at those sort of things, the statistics around, which unfortunately I don't have, women present in trade, you know, when we trade across the continent, how is that area dominated and how are women accommodated in that and how are platforms put into place and possibilities for more women to be onboarded and become effective participants. All right, sure. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, so that's uh, Linda Mahapatuna Sangare, who is the Chief Marketing Officer at a Brand South Africa. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. You're still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Let's start with Onel Nzinti with your news headlines. Presidential candidates who are cited in opposition MDC Alliance leader Nelson Chamisa's constitutional court application are not allowed to agree with him. Malawi's Public Affairs Committee, a religious group including main opposition Malawi Congress Party, have endorsed anti-government protests organized by human rights defenders set for September. And the authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo have approved the use of four further experimental vaccines to tackle the outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus. Channel African News, I'm Onelenzinzi.
All right, uh, thank you very much, Onele, for that. A new report by the Institute of Race Relations in South Africa argues that uh, while the country's uh, deeply deficient public health service is in desperate need of reform, the main purpose of what has come to be known as the National Health Insurance, or NHI, is not to improve health services, but rather to drive the private sector out of the healthcare sphere. The details of the piece of legislation were unveiled by Health Minister Dr. Aaron Mutualedi in June, and if implemented, will overhaul the healthcare system and herald the introduction into law, the NHI. The NHI, which is expected to be phased in over a period of years, is a financing system that will make sure that all citizens of South Africa are provided with essential healthcare, especially the poor. To shed some light on this, we're now joined on the line by Maras Rod, who is campaign manager at the Institute for of Race Relations. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Marius. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, why did you decide to compile your report? Uh, well, uh, we've been looking at uh, the proposals for national health insurance, and we're not sure that South Africa will afford it, nor that it will uh, actually provide health care for or, or provide decent health care for all South Africans. They say the the problem at the moment, this is the health department, is that a lot of South Africans cannot afford health care and good health care. Um, your view on that? Uh, well, about 30% of South Africans access private health care, and this is partly because of the problems in the public health care system. Uh, we don't think that the problems in the public health care system are because of a lack of resources. Rather, we think it's because of issues such as uh, management deficiencies, catered deployment and uh, a misuse of resources rather than a lack of resources. Uh, they've modeled um, this around the, the British uh, free healthcare system. Um, you don't think it's being done well in South Africa, though, um, even though they say it, it, it's doing relatively good in Britain? Uh, well, the UK and South Africa are very different countries. We've seen that the government in general uh, manages entities quite poorly. You can uh, look, for example, at... Uh, uh, entities such as the SAA or ESCOM and see how badly they've been run over the past few years. Uh, there's no reason to think that NHR will be uh, run well compared to uh, other government entities. All right, and uh, Marius, now give us the um, specific reasons now you decided that you needed to raise this through this report and where is the report going now? Uh, well, the report is part of our submission to Parliament on the NHR bill that will be uh, the deadline for written submissions to Parliament is the 21st of September, so just over a month from now. So this report uh, is part of our submission and uh, a general effort to uh, let the public know about uh, what NHR will actually mean for South Africans. Um, are there any positives that you found linked to this plan? Uh, not any that we can see. Obviously, uh, providing all South Africans with uh, decent health care is a noble objective. We just don't think NHR is the way to do it. We think uh, the other ways that we could uh, extend uh, decent health care to uh, all South Africans. All right, so NHI is going ahead. Um, Health Minister Aaron Mutualedi has said that it will be phased in over a number of years. Um, how do you think maybe it can be done better than um, what you say is being done at the moment when it eventually does get introduced? Because it doesn't seem like it's not going to get introduced. 
Well, we don't think NHR should be introduced at all. What we think should happen is public health care system should be improved through, as I said earlier, uh, improved management, better use of resources, and at the same time, uh, encouraging more people to use the private health care system. And we have suggested a number of ways of doing it, through, for example, health vouchers or requiring all uh, South Africans that are employed to belong to a medical aid scheme. Uh, people on lower incomes uh, could be uh, subsidized by their employers to become members of medical aid schemes, and then these employers could uh, get uh, reimbursed through tax credits, for example. Improving the public health care system, maybe? That's not an option? Of course, that is an option, but at the moment, only 15% of South African uh, public health care facilities even reach uh, minimum standards of... Um, a minimum standard that they need to have reached. So uh, obviously the first goal is to uh, improve the public health care system, but at the moment we don't see this happening. All right, sure. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. That is Marius Ruad, who is campaign manager at the Institute of Race Relations. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. All right, it's info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, more than 700 kilograms of pangolin scales have been trafficked from Bangui, the capital of the Central African Republic, to Vietnam. They've been intercepted at the Douala International Airport. Six traffickers of the totally protected wildlife species said to be under extinction were arrested. Countries united to ban international commercial trade of pangolins during the 17th conference of parties COP17 in Cape Town. Kikinzeka is in Cameroon. Sungwa, a Cameroon wildlife official, says the police and wildlife protection staff busted the international network of traffickers when six of its members from Cameroon and the neighboring Central African Republic were arrested as they tried to smuggle the pangolin scales to the Douala International Airport. Sue says the scales that were to be flown through Nigeria to Asia were brought into Douala from CAR's capital Bangui 
by road. The trollers are approximately 230 big pangolins and 26 smaller ones was going to the Asian continent, precisely at Vietnam. The majority of the scales were from the giant pangolin, which is threatened with extinction. Central Africa is considered a hotspot for sourcing illegal pangolin scale that is exported mainly to Asian countries. In June 2016, Hong Kong authorities said they seized four tons of pangolin scales being smuggled from Cameroon to Asian countries. Still in 2016, two Chinese traffickers were arrested with five tons of pangolin scales that were about to be illegally exported from Cameroon to China. But Ofri Drury, director of the international non-governmental organization Last Great Ape, LAGA, that assists African states in protecting endangered wildlife, says besides Cameroon's wildlife law in which anybody arrested or found in possession of parts or the whole of a protected wild animal is presumed to have captured or killed that animal and is liable to a prison term of one to three years and or a 10 million or 20,000 maximum fine, Central African states lack legislation that can dissuade poachers. What you've seen here is just a snapshot of maybe a weekly or maybe two weeks kind of trade of that specific group. As long as there are countries that could not be proud of a single wall of prosecution, we will still have this kind of problem. Laga reports that the modus operandi of the traffickers is buying the scales from smaller traffickers in Cameroon, CAR, DR Congo and exporting them to Nigeria via Cameroon from where they are transported to Asian countries. It says the traffickers are equally linked to rhino horn and lion trophies trafficking. Joseph Lekalem, Cameroon's director of wildlife, says there have been efforts to reduce drastically the illegal business by providing communities where the scaly antitas are still found with alternative sources of livelihood so they can stop poaching. Beaucoup d'activités génératrices de revenus ont été réalisées au profit des populations. He says they have initiated so many revenue-generating activities like fish farming, the production of honey through bee farming, the provision of cocoa seedlings and drinkable water so that the population should be comfortable and stop selling protected wildlife to poachers and be true friends of nature. But that the problem is that many people still harvest huge quantities of the wildlife for commercial purposes which is prohibited by the law. Drury says a stop on networks of corrupt government officials and the police who facilitate illegal pangolin and pangolin scale trade is vital in eliminating the business. The most important thing is fighting corruption. This kind of uh, wildlife trade is connected to organized crime and the only way to tackle organized crime is to fight corruption and complicity that is enabling it fighting corruption is the most important thing and then intelligence-led enforcement and governments opening up opening up for more partnerships that can help and bring more professionalism into uh, intercepting those kind of uh, bigger criminal syndicates
Cameroon last year burned more than three tons of pangolin skins and scales seized from smugglers and destined for Asian countries and said by burning the skins of the world's most trafficked mammal and arresting smugglers, it was sending strong signals that the Central African state will no longer be a country where poaching and smuggling run rampant. Pangolins are one of the world's most trafficked species and are threatened with extinction. Their scales are widely used in traditional Chinese medicine and their meat is a delicacy in many Asian and African countries. Countries united to ban international commercial trade in pangolins during the 17th Conference of Parties COP17 to the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species held in Cape Town, South Africa in 2016, yet consumer demand remains high in Asian countries, fueling the illegal market. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. It is now time for your economic news. Here's Usani Matebula. Thanks, Zikona, and good afternoon. Experts, researchers, and international organizations involved in the agricultural sector believe getting more youth involved in the sector is the solution to problems like famine, poverty, and unemployment in Africa. The observation was made at a two-day International African Conference in Kigali, Rwanda. The conference examined how more youths can be encouraged to have interest in the agricultural sector. Sylvanas Karimera reports. Statistics provided in this international conference show that two-thirds of the people in Africa are below the age of 35, but very few of them engage in agriculture, leading to productivity in that particular sector to fall far below what it should be, considering that it dominates the available work on the continent at 65%. With this, however, the sector only accounts for 32% of Africa's GDP. Agricultural officials from the African Union believe Something needs to be done. An employee from South African television channel Afro World 
will be absorbed into the new news channel on DSTV. Afroworld, uh, formerly known as AN7, was taken off air after its contract was controversially not renewed by NASPA's Smalti Choice. The term- termination has left over 300 workers unemployed. South Africa's Minister of Communications, Nomvula Mukonyane, says Multi Choice has assured her that they will prioritize the employment of these workers. Mukonyane spokesperson, Mlimandlela Ndamase. Minister Mukunyane has been given assurance by multi-choice. There will be some priority to seek out employment opportunities, especially for those 300 members of staff who were previously employed by AfroWorld. The minister's view and priority is to ensure that we do not necessarily lose these skills to the media sector, but importantly is that we do not short-set job opportunities within the sector. And South Africa's consumer price inflation has increased uh, for the third consecutive month in July, according to statistics released uh, yesterday by the Statistics South Africa. The CPI accelerated to 5.1% from 4.6%. States SA say the main drivers were higher beverages costs uh, due to the sugar tax and municipal rates and fuel, which jumped by double digits. The good news is that uh, food inflation has been stable in recent months uh, with uh, price decreases in some items. Patrick Kelly is with Statistics South Africa. Uh, We've seen big increases, particularly in fizzy drinks. For example, a one-liter bottle of fizzy drinks was 14.33 on average in July compared to 12.99 in July the previous year. Uh, This is a 10% increase. Uh, we've seen assessment rates increase by almost 15% year-on-year uh, this month, water tariffs by almost 12%, um, and electricity fees by about 7%. Uh, petrol and diesel, which has now hit an annual rate of 25.3%. Uh, this is the highest annual increase for fuel since December 2011, when we had a 26.2% increase. Now we look at your financial indicators. The dollar 10.52, Botswana Pila 10.11, Zambian Kwacha, BRICS currencies. We've got the dollar at 3.98 Brazilian real, 67.18 Russian ruble, 69.70 Indian rupee, and at 6.83 Chinese yuan. While the South African rent still struggling, but uh, looking better at 14.4 South African rent against the US dollar. Commodities gold uh, is at $1,195, platinum down $794 per fine ounce. Brand crude oil consistent at $72.85 per barrel. That's how it's looking. Your sports news now. With your latest to Channel Africa Sports News at this hour, I'm Neto N-E-T-O Chemani. From the sports desk, a very good evening. Starting off with tennis news, South African tennis star Kevin Anderson will be seated fifth for the year's final Grand Slam, the US Open, which starts in New York next week. Anderson moved back into the world's top five on Monday, following his run to the last 16 of last week's Cincinnati Masters, where he was beaten 6-2, 6-4 by Belgium's David Coffin. 
Anderson will have good memories of New York, having made headlines at the US Open last year when he reached the final before losing to the world number one Rafael Nadal from Spain. The South African also reached the Wimbledon final this year, but lost to Serbia's Novak Djokovic. Second seed Roger Federer has played down his chances of winning a sixth US Open, tipping rivals Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic as favorites to win this year's final Grand Slam. The 37-year-old was speaking ahead of next week's tournament, which gets underway on Monday at Flushing Meadows. Federer is coming off the back of a 6-4, 6-4 loss to Djokovic in the final of last week's Cincinnati Masters, a defeat that saw the SEP become the first player to win all nine Masters 1000 titles, a feat known as the Golden Masters. That fact led the 20-time Grand Slam champ to pick the sixth seed and current world number one Nadal as the players to watch next week. On to football news. In the Vision 2022 document, South African Football Association SAFA had targeted that by end of the year 2018 all the Premier Soccer League, National First Division and ABC Mozipa League teams would have a women's team. But six years later, since the document was created under the former SAFA president, Kirsten Namatandani, nothing has changed. Mamelodi Sundowns, Bloemfontein Celtic and Amatax remain the only PSL and NFD clubs with a women's team. But SAFA Vice President Riel Dwaba says with the National Women's League kicking off in April next year, they are hoping to convince their counterparts at the PSL to go this route. We are saying uh, we have a joint license committee uh, meeting with PSL. So what we are going to raise with them there is to ask them to probably adopt some of the teams in their area. They are there already. Just to adopt them and be able, or if they can adopt them, can they also be able to have teams? You know it's engagement, it involves money, you can't push it to, to people. You have to discuss with them and find a solution. But we think a solution is when you have this National League and the PSL are prepared to adopt some of the teams, not to take them uh, from their owners, but, you know, to support those owners through their teams themselves. And they can be able to grow from there. Starting a women's team from scratch could be an issue for some PSL teams, but with many women's teams in the Cecil League, Ledoba says they are hoping that there could be a buy-in from the PSL clubs to also adopt the teams around them. Well, we haven't started uh, the discussion. You know, when you, when you want to uh, get the result from a discussion, have a document that has been discussed with the stakeholders, the teams themselves. We have asked them that question, is there an option where you can allow the, the PSL to adopt you? And they said, look, maybe we don't have the capacity to talk to the PSL teams. Maybe if SAFA does that, and we will be free to, to engage with them. It's engagement because remember these teams, they own the team like the PSL. But if they want to grow, this is the relationship that we can build. We just have to have a relationship where we can share ideas with PSL and be able to get their, their buy-in into, into this. The reason why you have Sundowns and, and Celtics, it, it, it's, a, it's a platform for them to see that indeed the value that Sundowns is bringing into the players that are there, they pay for their, they gave them some stipends, they pay for their school fees, 
equally Celtics. That's what they do. And finally, in athletics news, South Africa's golden girl of long distance running, 2018 Two Oceans champion and comrades marathon gold medalist, Jada Stein has been invited to join the elite women's field at this year's New York City Marathon. The women's field is seen as one of the most competitive ever to compete in the Big Apple. This is also the reason why Stein will not be competing in the World 100 Kilometers Championships as she committed to the New York City Marathon soon after Two Oceans and her training was already structured, accordingly three weeks after the Comrades Marathon specific for New York. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sports, I'm Neto and Ito Chemani. This is Africa Digest. Let us recap out of stories. All eyes were on Zimbabwe's constitutional court as opposition seeks to overturn the July 30 elections outcome. More than 700 kilograms of pangolin scales trafficked from Bangui have been intercepted in Cameroon. And that wraps up Africa Digest. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Dumelo Mukwena, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thanks for listening. It's info at channelafrica.co.za on email. Plus 27-76-300-3327 on WhatsApp. Tweet us on Channel Africa One. We leave you with Ngivumele by Musa.
ndire moni inunonse onvera kulikonse komwe mkutimva ntawi ino yomweta zandizo mweta konza mchinyanja pano pa channel Africa tikumveka pa 31 meter band mu shortwave imenenso ndi 9625 kilohertz ndipo tikumveka maiko onse akumwera ndipakati mu Africa komanso mbali zina Tidinso pa internet pa kaya www.channelafrica.co.za Naboni timvere limozi. Zochitika mu Afrika.